0: Marg, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a geologist, right?
1: Yes, my background is geology.
0: What kind of geologist are you?
1: I would consider myself a geochemist because um, I got very early on in my studies into geochemistry, specifically into isotope geochemistry.
0: I remember thinking that geochemistry sounded like one of the more boring types of uh, geology, but it's actually really fascinating.
1: It actually is. And I have to admit that um, it was my plan to become a geochemist. It was really via, you know, coincidence and um, and and I'm happy that it happens because happened because I I just never imagined to do now anything else. So uh, I I just wanted to go out in the field and hit rocks and actually to even go further. I want I never wanted to become a geologist to begin with. I wanted to become an astronomer and uh, I went into geophysics, and I loved physics and math and all that. So, uh, but then, uh, yeah, but thanks to a sad incidence that I didn't manage to uh, accomplish math and physics, I ended up in geology, and then by coincidence, I ended up in geochemistry, and now I can't be happier than any anyway, yeah.
0: Wonderful. That's a really interesting story. So, you weren't particularly strong at math.
1: I was in, at school and I must say it's uh, it's weird so I uh, was at a girls school and um, our classes so in Germany I, I, I did my studies in Germany so I grew up in Germany and um, the way it works in Germany till so high school is from uh, grade 10th and then you have another three years it's basically it belongs also to high school but it's uh, you can choose your subjects uh, to, to a certain extent like you obviously have the majors, math and uh, German literature and all that and another foreign language. But uh, you can pick and I picked physics and uh, math, but not a whole lot of people, other people pick that like it was a girl's school. Right. And then uh, so and if there are too few people who would like that class, then it doesn't come together. So but then at least not as a major. So I took it as, a, as a, I picked it as a minor and I loved it. I really loved it however i have to say i was much stronger in chemistry and biology and like in natural science in general and then later on in at university i really totally failed in math physics was great like experimental physics um uh anyway theoretical physics well yeah but uh but math was absolutely not my my i don't know why i lost it so bad it was really like i dropped from being really good in math at school to really, really not not getting anything at uh, the university level. So, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a, like, not a little bit, a really, really bitter experience because I was for a long time, I was really, really frustrated and you know how it is. You, at the very beginning, I even didn't dare to go into that field, but then I thought, oh, let's take the leap. But then I failed and then I was really, uh, like, really crushed and um, I really totally considered what I wanted to do, and then I thought maybe I should do something completely different, like uh, pharmacy. And and also my dream broke, right? Like astronomy, you can only Mm -hmm. do that in Germany uh, via a physics degree. So um, so yeah, but then uh, luckily geology uh, gave another um, like I thought it would uh, give me another door open because geologists did have the option to take geophysics as as a minor. So I went down that route and then I discovered geochemistry. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, that is actually what I should be doing. So yeah, it was, it was really uh, very frustrating. And it's one of the stories that I like to share, especially with undergrads and students um, I'm interacting with because it can be, um, you know, if you, if you start doubting yourself, which, you know, as a, as a girl in science, you would, I guess, and then in general you would, it can, it, you know, you, it, it's, it's one of those things that I stuck a lot, like I, I, I lost a lot of semesters because I didn't want to give up and I thought, no, this year I'm not going to do anything else but math. But then I still didn't get it. And then sometimes you have to, and it may not sound what a lot of people tell you to be, you know, especially in women in science and STEM. uh, uh, You have to pursue your dreams. You have to be confident and don't give up. But sometimes it's good if you listen to life and uh, really, you know, just pick what life is giving you and uh, you end up being just simply happier.
0: There's certainly a skill to pivoting. Uh, when you run into a brick wall, and it's useful to know when uh, when enough is enough, and you need to move on.
1: Absolutely, I think that is that is something that I I can al- always uh, just from my uh, experience I can al- always um, uh, support that theory. Like you shouldn't be so tense about things that you in the end. Uh, Run, like run yourself into a corner where you think, oh no, but I have to do it, but I should be able to do it. Everyone else does it. It's just not meant to be, and it may sound lunatic, but I'm a strong believer of something like that. It's, if it's not meant to be for you, then uh, don't uh, push it.
0: I know many people who um, ha- haven't made that pivot and they keep uh, running their heads against that um, that skill ceiling. Um, and then they end up wasting years and years and years of their lives trying to get into a program that just isn't the right fit for them, um, and it's really unfortunate sometimes.
1: Exactly, and and I would I would argue that you need to find the balance, not to give up too soon either. Mm-hmm. But um, at some point, you have to you have to look right and left. There are so many things out in the world, so you don't have to set your mind. You don't have to, you know. Um, you be stubborn. Just simply be stubborn.
0: Absolutely. So, did you do geology all through school? So
1: yeah. So anyway, like it's it's a little bit. I have a very, um, as I said, school as 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 easy. I want to say school was for me as uh, uh, as 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 convoluted my university studies were. So. I, Again, during that experience, I studied, uh, I tried to study geophysics and get a degree in that and I couldn't. And then I was so frustrated and really so uh, crushed that I thought, OK, go back. Just go back a few years and just pretend you just finished school and then what are the options there? And um, my family, for instance, they were really much into life sciences. So my my, my dad is a medical doctor and he would have loved it if one of us would have done pharmacy or something like that, life science, is not medicine, though. So he was always against that because he thought it's too hard of a job. It it, it just eats you up personally, he felt. So uh, despite all that, my sister did it. So but then again, I saw I rewind my whole life and my my whole thinking. And then I thought, okay, then I'm going to try to get in a life science program. I even was about to to give up uh, studying altogether and uh, do uh you know something completely different just go and work uh, for a while and just get a get a break of everything but then uh anyway but then i got into pharmacy program in fact uh, which was not really easy to get back in in germany but my grades from school were quite good so they had a limit of you had to have a i guess here in um, in uh, canada or north america it would be something, something like a gpe or something. And, uh, so that was pretty good. So I got into the program and I started that, uh, program, but it's sh- all this geology that I had during my geophysics class and the chemistry, I, I uh, like chemistry I had in pharmacy was a bit of a more organic, but still, uh, but all those classes, it still was lingering, you know, in my background. And I, and, and also it was not only because I was kind of missing them. It was also this, this. Just pouting that, oh, I did all that for nothing. And I didn't want to accept that. So I snuck in into those, those courses of geology still in parallel. And I could have done that for almost a full undergrad. Um, and it's a little bit different in Germany. We don't have really undergrad and grad studies so uh, at least at that time when I studied. I think they changed the program now also to, to adjust it to the North American program. Uh, but at that time, you would just study something. So you would just uh, enroll in a program like geology, and then there were very strict courses that you had to take for the first two years, and then very strict courses that you have advanced courses. And um, so anyway, I went into the first one or two semester, and I could have done both in parallel pharmacy and geology because um, I had all the math, the, the math like the, the, the basic math that was good enough for geologists, but not good enough for geophysics. <laughs> And uh, I had all the chemistry and I had all the geology, the general basic geology courses. I had geophysics basically. So, so I had that. And then I had this. So at some point, I think after three semesters or four semesters, I had to make a decision because I couldn't keep, you know, doing both uh, in parallel. So in those first uh, three, four semesters, my focus was definitely pharmacy more. And then I had this um, life how how do you say that life-changing moment? Where in a summer in a summer I had to uh, accomplish in, um, how do you say that an internship? It was it was a mandatory for pharmacy and we had also a field trip from the geology class and the field trip was uh, going to Iceland and wow. my internship in pharmacy was in a in a pharmacy at the hospital at the university hospital. So I had that first and I was working there for four, four weeks basically. <laughs> and then right after that was the, the Iceland future. And i never never forget that I was sitting on Mühvatn, that was this lake in, in Iceland. It was so great. I mean, there were flies all around you, but this, this landscape and the group. And and then I was just sitting all by myself and thinking and, <laughs> and looking around. And then I thought, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not gonna. I mean, it's not a wise decision because Again, in my, in my stage where I had lost already so many years, I should have pursued pharmacy because just, just the, the, the job offers are way more and the, the perspectives are much better than a geologist. But that was the decision where I had, I said, okay, I'm sorry, I have to do, I'm going to pursue geology or whatever it's, <laughs> it fits better. Yeah. And that's when I gave up pharmacy and uh, yeah, and then I continued my study in geology and then I had a very very lucky coincidence like you know sometimes you it's it's just what uh, they always say in life you have to be in the right time the right place so I was studying for mid midterms uh, kind of midterms it would be here now it's kind of like a bachelor which we in Germany didn't have but it's kind of halfway through your uh, uh your studies the for a master's a little master program it, we would get a diploma so it would be five years and uh, after two or three years, you would have a really big exam. And I was studying for that. And I was asking the TA at that time whether I could, uh, on my free time, go and see the rock samples and uh, you know, train a little bit on that. And then she said, yes. And uh, it was me and another person, like my, like my partner. He, we were both studying. And then this, the TA, whom I knew, she all, all of a sudden said, hey, you guys are looking for jobs, student jobs. And uh, I was looking at her and said, yeah, of course, sure. And she was working. She did. I'm not sure whether she was doing her um, master thesis or already her PhD thesis at the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry, which is housed on the campus of the University of Mainz in Germany. And so they like the geology department and the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry had a really, really strong interaction and uh, they would exchange uh, a lot of research ideas and, and projects and a lot of students were were uh, doing their analysis there because the Max Planck Institute obviously had a better it was better equipped than university and uh, so it was a lot of interaction all of us of course were dreaming to go there and so the Max Planck Institute was divided in four sections one was geochemistry one was cosmochemistry one was atmospheric chemistry and the other one was biogeochemistry and then uh, the geochemistry section was looking for student helpers. So, and uh, this TA was giving up her position because she was uh, wrapping up her thesis. So she referred the two of us to the group of klaus Peter Jochel. And that lab, it was, it was just great. Like, I mean, that was really something that really led me into research. And up to now, I must say, without wanting to stepping on anyone's toes, but up to now, this is kind of the gold standard of research to me. Like the way they did back then in the Max Planck Institute research and the way they dealt with things and the ethics there. And uh, it was just amazing. So I got uh, like the two of us, we got the job. So, um, and the job was great. I mean, it was was really like, it was really kind of um, fortune falling down from the sky. Uh, It was about uh, Martian meteorites. Analyzing SNC meteorites or Martian meteorites, and on a mass spectrometer, and I was supposed to help um, and, uh, in that project. And, and it was just, yeah, it was as I did. and that's how I got into geochemistry. And that's where, the, which which opened my eyes and said, oh my god, I never knew, but this is what I wanted to do all my life. So yeah, I got uh, into meteoritics, planetary science, geochemistry. I so at that time, oh sorry, at that time, I uh, they were working on the APX uh, spectrometer on the, I think, the uh, Rosetta or Odessa, and it was so great. I got to see it actually, and then and then the the person, the engineer, who was showing that to me, and it, that was something that I'm missing a little bit after Max Planck, because at that time, even as a little little student helper, you would you would you know kind of uh, take a sneak peek in a room and then there was sitting somebody's oh yeah come on in and it was not just let's say somebody it was somebody who really worked on these on these things mm-hmm. and they were so open and they were just like it was a really big big family with all the all the troubles that family has too i, I don't want to picture you know just um roses and and, and, and good times but but it was uh, just um, mm-hmm. I don't know, it, the research, really the research and the matter, the subject matter was was the, the main player in that whole institute. And, um, yeah, and so I ended up there like four years actually for the rest of my studies. And I was more there than at the university in the end. And I must say, I, if I may say so, I learned much, much more in, in being there than in any classes I ever learned. So yeah, I, I did that project and then I did my master thesis there. Together, I obviously you had to do it with the university faculty, but uh, a lot of people there did it with uh, the Max Planck research um, research uh, staff. I want to say, and then the director of it was a, a faculty an honorary faculty, obviously. And so the, together with him, um, I did my thesis in Hawaii about about Hawaii. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it's just this this experience was just amazing. The people there, plus are home, like it's. it's when he started thinking out loud, it was just like you could see the, the smoke coming out of his head and you could see the smoke really forming and shaping to, 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 to things. And I was just, it was just great. We were just sitting around him and then, yeah, that's how I learned actually. That's really what, what I learned about uh, geochemistry. And things. Yeah.
0: Does that mean you've actually held Mars?
1: I actually, yeah, I did, I mean, and it was it was amazing. And I took that and all of my for for a, a long time, my whole life was was around Mars. And I took like my seminar talks, like I still had to collect some credits, right, in my university. Side. And it was all about Mars. Like people, my friends, they were all annoyed already <laughs> by me talking Mars. And uh, yeah, it was I'd, I like seeing these these rocks, and then they were. Uh, uh, Um, As I mentioned, they had a cosmochemistry uh, section, right? Now everything got dissolved and and changed, but at that time they had a cosmochemistry, a very strong one. And they they had all these lunar samples from the Apollo missions uh, on the third floor, and I got to see them all, and it was, it's really, yeah, very impressive.
0: So in the end, you got to do your astronomy through... Geology. Yeah,
1: exactly, and and I never forget that because I really had given up on that. I was I was so bitter in the end that I even never um, pull out my uh, um, what do you call it in English the um, uh, celestial map. you know, oh, yeah. I had a little one when I, when I went outside uh, at home, I would always look at the stars and I was in an astronomy club and all that. I was after the failing in math. I was so frustrated that I had put them in the last corner and I thought, okay, that's not good. But then, yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean with, uh, you know, don't underestimate life. If you really want something, you will probably get to what you wanted, but, um, maybe via a detour.
0: So what were you studying in Hawaii?
1: So Hawaii was, was super great, and I was hoping to get there and pick my samples myself, but unfortunately I didn't. Um, so at that time they had a so called uh, program, um, HSDP program. Uh, it was the phase two of that program already. It, it was called uh, Hawaiian Scientific Scientific Drilling Project. And what they did was they drilled in a flank of the volcano, Mauna Kea and uh, try to basically core uh, the, uh, the, the volcano just to see the layers, each layer, lava layers, and then see the evolution, the geochemical evolution of this volcano. Oh. And um, so, so people like Dominic, for instance, a lot of people actually at that time, they, they did study, for instance, the various trends, geochemical trends. And uh, what they can see is that the two volcanoes, adjacently, there are two trends in, in Hawaii. like uh growing uh, adjacently and uh what what my project was uh, uh um, aiming for was to see whether i could uh pick glasses not to analyze whole rock material but pick glasses out of these um out of these drill cores which partly was below the sea level and uh so to avoid seawater uh, seawater alterations And then really get the pristine signature, geochemical signature of the, of the volcano, of the lava at that time. And that's what I did. And it was, it was funny. Like I was sitting there for hours. So I would take the rocks from each layer, right? Or from each section. And then I would crush it. And then I was sitting um, under a microscope. I was picking little glasses. So you didn't want to have certain minerals in, like olivine, for instance. You didn't want them. You didn't want, uh, I don't know, the dust and all that. You d- really did wanted fresh little volcanic glasses, and that that didn't look altered or somehow uh, with a whitish or rusty rim or something. <laughs> and, and obviously, the more you, the finer you crushed it, the, the fresher samples you would get. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that. It was I I was doing that from like the whole day, and in the night you would close your eyes, and you had this little little chunks of of glass in front of your eyes, and they appeared like huge rocks and volcanoes in front of your eyes. Like it was it was funny, but um, yeah, I did that for a lot of the sections, and then we analyzed them, and then we tried to like analyze them for their uh, uh, major and trace element composition as well as light isotopic composition. And then just to see whether it really like my master thesis was basically a small part of that big project. So I just wanted to show whether seawater alteration or whole rock analysis can be really uh, compared to these classes or whether we should be careful and, and tease out the seawater alteration and basically weathering processes. And uh, yeah, that's what I that's what I did. It um, was really good because afterwards, like the thesis was, yeah, well, but the, the the later on the, the, the those those miles of are very. And my my supervisor Klaus Peter Jäger, he would he would keep saying these very precious, super precious glasses. We would do uh, microanalytical tests after that, and uh, after my thesis, and I was I was employed for another almost a year there after finishing my uh, classes, and uh, yeah, we did a lot of um, uh, analysis with those. Yeah, it was pretty good at that time. We, um, the institute, the, the the lab, bought a laser ablation system, and we tested all that on these glasses, right? So,
0: and what is a laser ablation system?
1: A laser ablation system is um, it's a device that uh, utilizes a laser, a laser light, to to mobilize, to uh, excavate sample material, and then redirects it to the mass spectrometer for analysis. So with a laser, um, because a laser obviously is a very, very uh, strong and focused laser, aligned light beam, you can go to really, really small uh, dimensions, like at sub-micron even. Uh, sub-micron, I would be careful, but definitely micron uh, scale. So f- for instance, this laser ablation system that we have here at PCIGR, it can go from 5 micrometers up to 200 micrometers. What it does is it drills. It's basically a little small drill. Uh, or an auto sampler if you want to call it. it um, You focus the laser on the sample surface, and then it, when you shoot it, um, uh, it excavates the material, it mobilizes it, and produces a little aerosol in a specific gas, helium, we use helium, and that uh, these fine particles, they get then flushed out to the mass spectrometers and those fine particles will be um, measured for their chemical and isotopic composition. And by that, you can do really, really fine scale measurements like um, uh, uh, that you otherwise, you know, that's exactly what my master thesis was. I had to pick enough glass materials so we could have a dissolve them and then have a solution that has a high enough concentration that the mass spectrometer could measure in solution. But with a little, but with the laser ablation system, we didn't need to pick so many glasses, right? It would, it would just uh, ablate uh, a really tiny uh, amount of material, and then the mass spectrometer could measure
0: it. So. You're quite the rock star. It sounds like you know you're playing with extraterrestrial material. You're coring volcanoes, and you're playing with lasers. Like,
1: yeah, I, think, I guess that is that is something that is the beauty of geochemistry, right? Like the the variety of things that you can do. I mean, I I shouldn't be so um, I mean, arrogant. I think any doing. science, right? But. But geochemistry is really so wide. It gives you so many options from, from as you said, from hard, high temperature, from meteoritics to low temperature. So so further in my career, it was really like, I, I started with meteorites and then I had deep metal, like Hawaiian plumes and stuff on the table. And then I went, uh, at the end, I was doing uh, biomineralization with mussels, on mussel shells to, to use them as climate archives. Um,
0: so and and that and
1: for that, for instance, the laser is extremely useful. So you know, as 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 you may know, um, muscle shells or other organisms that they grow in increments. So and then they um, they do change their uh, the shells that they deposit, for instance it changes with uh, with environmental conditions, like with seasons, summer, winter, with the pH of the water, with the salinity of the water, with all that uh, kind of stuff. And you can actually see that. You can see it macroscopically on really big muscle shells, but you can uh, actually measure it. And um, and yeah, that, that's uh, going back to geochemistry. That's the beauty of it. You can really um, use the same principle and do a lot of various things. Yeah.
0: Sounds like they based um, Austin Powers as Doctor Evil off of you. <laughs> well, you're checking all the boxes I
1: in a good I would, way. I wish I would.
0: Uh, and then, what brought you to UBC? How did we so, get you?
1: Yeah, that is also kind of uh, over a thousand corners. Again, one of those things, right? So, my uncle lives here, and I have some families here in living in Vancouver, and I was i was very young i think right after school maybe when i came uh, with my sister and we visited my uncle and oh my god we you know, like vancouver the, the the city and everything so beautiful and uh, me specifically not so much my family interestingly but like my sister was yeah, she actually loved it you know but i really loved it here so i thought oh my god when i grew up one time i want to live here but then obviously it never happened and then you know you get busy with your studies and your work and stuff and um yeah, when I finished my PhD in GEOMAR, I, I finished my PhD then in GEOMAR. I did all ocean sciences um, during my PhD. I uh, was at AGU on a conference, and it was uh, a few months before I was wrapping up. Uh, I would defend my, my thesis, and, and there um, I had a poster, and there there was uh, Chris Hunden, um, a, a, a professor in, at the University of Saskatchewan. And we were talking and chatting and had uh, bouncing some ideas back and forth. And then he said, "Oh, actually, are you looking for a postdoc?" I said, like, "Oh, yes." And then he said, um, yeah, and he already gave me his card and stuff. And I said, yeah, yeah let's keep in touch when you finished and uh, we can talk about project. And then I saw on his card, it was the University of Saskatchewan. So Canada. Okay. Canada is already great, right? And then, but I had no idea where Saskatoon was. Like, really, yeah, just <laughs> absolutely no idea. But then, you know, I was looking for a job, obviously, and it was Canada. And I definitely wanted to go abroad, uh, like uh, to, to see and just, I love traveling and I love, adventures adventures, and even as a kid I was always dreaming to be you know one of these Humboldt or whatever discover new continents and all that so anyway so I was totally thrilled and excited and then I ended up in Saskatoon and then in Saskatoon <laughs> was nothing but Vancouver obviously but it was it was exciting like I was three years there doing my postdoc and I I don't want to miss it really I mean I uh, Chris is going to laugh if he, he hears that now because I was absolutely not happy. I'm somebody who freezes when it, the, the, the temperature drops below 23. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it was, uh, you yes, know, that's good. And then, um, but, uh, but the project was pretty cool. It was about chromium isotopes and uranium isotopes in seawater. Mm-hmm. And the project was together with Roger Francois, who is here in our department. And I worked a lot with Maureen soon. Mm-hmm. Also here in our department together at that time, and yeah, and then and then I always tried to find an excuse to come and visit them, obviously. And then we had also a little side project in Sanage. So and Maureen was one time joking when I was here again, said, "Are you commuting between Saskatoon and Vancouver? And uh, yeah, so um, so uh, yeah, and then it was basically Maureen. Uh, she knew how how much I loved to come here, and we really worked uh greatly no, together. Like I, I loved working together with Maureen and Bogie and Chris and all those. And then uh yeah, but then but then uh, as things, you know, dissolved kind of uh, got all blurry after my postdoc like on my project basically was for years and it was finished and then I got this uh little stipend back in Mainz in Germany. That was the stipend to work on biomineralization, which I was very excited about. But then during that stipend was for a year. And then I thought, OK, I need to, I probably should go better back home. And, uh, you know, and then but then um, there was this opportunity coming up to work in Kabul in Afghanistan from where I am originally from. And then um, and to do foreign aid, something completely different. But it was also at the University of Kabul. It was facilitating um, uh, uh, science and research and uh, teaching over there in the geoscience department. And I was totally excited about that. So
0: uh, what year would that have would it, would it been roughly? That was uh, 2011, 2011,
1: 2012. Yeah, that was for a year initially and uh so um very much to to the uh to, to my to my former supervisor Dorit jacob we're still friends now she still talks to me <laughs> from mines my supervisor back then she was not very happy obviously but then uh, she agreed and then i uh stopped my stipend like i interrupted that and went to kabul and was there and um
0: it was a great
1: experience like i really so the first few months i thought no, this is one of these moments again. I guess I want to do everything in my life, so that is, probably that's a problem too. So um, I thought this is what I want to do all my life. I mean, you're working in foreign aid. You get to travel. You get to help people. You get paid for helping people, for God's sake, and you get to travel a lot. Like it, there was a lot of travel involved. Like we had meetings here and meetings there, and uh, back in Germany and then back in Kabul, and 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 then I thought, oh, I'm going to stay here. But then uh, things got but I can't say a little bit bitter, sour because um, anyway, um, I, I wasn't very happy the way, the way, at least in my program, the way things were dealt with. And I had probably a very naive perception of, um, of, of what I was supposed to do. So um, So anyway, so it, it, it was that one of these frustrating, again, frustrating moments, it was another few months until uh, this one year was actually uh, wrapping up for my foreign aid um, uh, job. And then I was really debating uh, whether uh, there was this discussion coming up, whether they would extend it or not, whether I want to extend it or not. And then I didn't. And at that time, Maureen actually, she sent me an email to my University minds uh address, like the, the, the stipend that I still had there address and said, "Hey, where are you? Are you happy wherever you are? There is an uh, opening coming up here in um, at UBC. Do you want to come? Do you want to apply?" And then, and it was it was really great because at that time, and I'm happy that that the timing was before just for my own sake, so I could be um, so you know uh, look my look, look myself into the mirror. I had already decided that I do not want to accept my uh, job at, at Foreign Aid. Like I, it was it was a very difficult decision, and I can only tell that to anyone who experiences that, just be true to yourself. Like you have to be true to yourself. And this is something that actually is um, is kind of the, the, my take home message throughout my whole life, I would say. And, and I hope that it, it will stay like that. I really learned that so the first thing like math and physics, just be true to yourself and just admit, OK, this may not be my thing. And then Afghanistan, uh, like, again, I love the country. Obviously, I, although I was three years old when we left. And so I didn't know I didn't know much about it. But still, I grew up in kind of that culture at home. But um, I love the uh, the country there. I love to help people. I wanted to to bring it back up. I always thought if I'm not doing it, like, like I mean, who else? Right. I mm-hmm. mean, why would somebody else who's from the West uh, should help? And I'm just sitting there and enjoying my comfort in the woods. So I I really felt this obligation to do that. But uh, at the very same time I thought, okay, the way it's been done here, I cannot, I cannot support that. Like it's anything I want to support. And it was very tempting. You did get a lot of money. I must say, like, it's really unimaginable how much you get paid for for foreign aid. And i don't want to disgrace that i mean you do risk your life you are far away from home you do have a lot of uh, disadvantages but again for me it was you get a lot of money you get paid at all for helping people and stuff but so it was very tempting and at that time i didn't have much of another job offer either plus i wasn't that young and i didn't have a very strong profile like tons of and whatever, so the perspectives weren't that good for me. So it was very tempting to say, "Okay, I would like to stay," but I didn't. And and then and then you 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 know you the way it is like human nature, I think, and I think that is the art of of human beings. Um, it may be a little bit not a pretty art. It may help you actually to survive, but. When you start excusing or find excuses and little loopholes for yourself, like I would, I was, I remember I was sitting there and, and thinking about it, and then I thought, oh, but if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And so when I, you know, keep working here in that system, then I at least go and buy my food from the local stores and I can actually interact with people. I'm, I don't go to the UN compound and, and buy my groceries there mm-hmm. while, uh, a pure German person would, and like my friends, they would always go to the UN and get their stuff over there. I can, I can, you know, I'm paying rent to a local person and I'm not living in the GIZ, a guest house or something. you know, all these little loopholes. But the main point was really can you really like put your name under the system that it's been run and that they request you to be like that? Like it wasn't really about helping, it was more about showcasing how much uh, foreign aid or how much the, the German and it was a, it was a government office, right? It was a foreign um, the a ministry for foreign affairs that I was working with. So how much they actually accomplished, but when it came to actually do something, then everybody was backing off. And then, and then this, 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 uh, this, this lesson that they would give us in those, this, classes that those coaching classes before you would go. And while you were there, you have to change the attitude of people there. And I was saying, that's not what I'm here for. I don't care what attitude they have. I would like to teach them how to do a calibration because that is important for them. I mean, they can live their life the way they want. I mean, that's not my mission. And so anyway, um, and then and then also you know, the locals were under pressure. It was, it was really, I I I to talk, I guess, so many years about that, I, I spare you the details, but it was uh, something I could, I personally was not as uh, supportive of. So, and then I was very proud. And then when this message, and luckily this email from Maureen came after I made that decision, otherwise I would have felt bad as all, oh, you're just doing that so you can go to it. Right. But I was, I was glad it came after that because um, I, I really had no plan. But then again, yeah. something from, from the sky just fell into your lap and then it's oh my god yes but then i knew that my uh pr- predecessor like it was jane barling and i knew her and jane barling was a real great i mean i knew her before that i hadn't met her but she was before me in the max Planck um uh, institute and
0: oh, yeah so she was in germany with you
1: no not with me but before that like, right. like she was a more senior but before that i had heard her name so, I uh, mean, the geochemical community is not that big either, right? So, um, and Jane Barling was leaving here, and so it was her position, basically. And I was totally scared, and I said, oh my god, Marina, are you really thinking, this is, these are big, big, like, like, feet to, to fill in. I, I don't know whether I can do that. And then, it was uh, funny that maureen was chatting with me and jane was actually uh she she i contacted her like maureen said just contact her and ask her what what uh, you're supposed to do and then i was totally scared really and i didn't really think i would get the job but then uh, yeah but then luckily i had an interview with dominic and diane in kabul afghanistan was was so funny it, i mean that time there was a big assembly of like a political assembly right in the right in that city, a uh, neighborhood where I live and then everything, the security and everything was shut up right on that day of my interview with Dominic. I was all you know, nervous, <laughs> but then the internet crashed and I mean, the internet wasn't very strong in Kabul to begin with, but that day was especially bad. And then uh, it was, it was, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to Dominic that time I and mean, we had to postpone it a little bit, but then we somehow managed and uh, yeah, it was really, it was really fun.
0: It's funny, the same thing happened to me when I interviewed Dominic for the uh, podcast. Oh, really? Hers is the only interview where my internet cut out. But <laughs> so it so happened three times. <laughs> that's
1: great that you said, maybe it was her. It was a poor couple. <laughs> it was it her, problem. Yeah, so, and then I, I sent her a, um, a little um, presentation slides so what I was uh, like my background and what I was thinking to do and, and my experience on that. and yeah worked out really really well like I mean it was it was I could, I better than I could ever have dreamt of so I was um, till August in Kabul and then I went for two three weeks home to Germany packed my bags there and came over here
0: and what are you doing here now
1: so here I am, um, basically helping the lab uh, with my colleagues, Viv, Kathy, Corey, uh, everybody. <laughs> I'm. Um, we're having We're we're actually supporting users, um, students, but also external users, faculties, anyone who wants to have their samples analyzed for chemical and isotopic compositions. So a lot of times you see me in the laser lab. That is. Um, I focus on, but I also help with on the atom. Uh, atom is a, uh, it's a sorry, I'm, I'm so deeply in, you know, you, you forget that uh, it's it's not normal for people to know what an atom, what the atom. is. It's uh, an instrument. Right, it's called ICPMS. It's a mass spectrometer, and uh, it's capable of analyzing a range of uh, elements, a uh, very wide range of elements from lithium to uranium, actually across the whole periodic system. Um, yeah, and uh, that's what I'm what I'm actually doing. I help Dominic to design projects for students and or other faculties like right now I'm helping Kendra to design this uh, the project for uh, Emma's students and um, I'm uh, doing contract work. We do that a lot. Unfortunately, our lab is based on we, we call it soft money. That means we we are Uh, based on a service for user fee, like all of of the supplies and all of the uh, consumables, our salaries, everything is uh, mostly um, based on that. So we have to bring a lot of contract work in from industry, from government agencies like uh, Environment Canada, um, but also from uh, academic institutions. And yeah, that's basically my day to day.
0: In that long work history, in that fascinating work history, Have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, um, so one of one of my rather unique, like I mean, uh, rather unique discoveries was during my PhD. So my PhD was, as I said, at JUOMAR. It's also back in Germany, in Kiel. Um, It's an ocean science uh, institution, like research center. It is also a it's not a university institution, it's uh, like the Max Planck, rather, kind of that kind of federally private uh, funded. And um, there, I was supposed to um, investigate the calcium isotope budget, uh, the ocean, the marine calcium isotope budget during sea, sea floor alteration. So, what it really means is that seawater penetrates the sea floor. The bedrocks of the seafloor and it uh, alters it like it, they they interact see what interacts with a kind of hot uh, uh, bedrock underneath it and then they react and the the rocks get changed and they have a different uh, inter-exchange of chemical and isotopic inter inter-exchange
0: and then whatever
1: comes out back that gets discharged off the seafloor um uh is, is coming out uh, either as diffuse uh, uh modified seawater or as so-called uh, hydrothermal fluids hot springs you might have heard like black smokers and white smokers and those uh, fluids, fluids
0: like an underwater hot spring exactly
1: something like that and those fluids are very very uh it can be they are they actually are very different from this common seawater composition because they do carry the the rock signature to a certain extent and um, so the the whole point of my study and my PhD was to see for the calcium isotopes specifically, what does uh, the, the bedrock do to seawater? And that was, um, in, um, it was really a really great project. It, uh, that was uh, uh, important because it was one piece of the puzzle to, um, to explain or to uh, uh, describe calcium carbonate deposition in the earth. So to better understand CO2 sequestration in the earth and the, the, the global CO2 uh, cycling because a CO2 is um, uh, sequestered in calcium carbonate mainly, uh, and it was very important for the modelers, for the climate modelers uh, to see, okay, how much of the of the CO2 can be actually bound into calcium carbonate and hence uh, get it, uh, removed from the atmosphere. And for that, you can use calcium isotopes. So uh, calcium isotopes are uh, basically, uh, you probably have heard, by now, uh, that's fingerprinting. the fingerprinting isotopes can be used as a fingerprint, mm-hmm. and uh, isotopes can also, especially so-called stable isotopes, isotopes that have not been generated by a radioactive process or they they themselves do not uh, decay into any other um, uh, mass. Uh, those called stable isotopes. Those stable isotopes also describe. They cannot only be used as a fingerprint, but moreover, they can be um, used as a uh, to describe processes. So, so calcium, for instance, is pretty, it's, it's a really great element. I really love calcium. Calcium has six stable isotopes. So it's 40, it's 97% of any calcium of the element. Calcium consists of 40 calcium. So the mass of calcium is 40, but then there is 42 calcium. There's 43 calcium, 44. So it's all heavier calcium isotopes, six of them in total. So when you, for instance, uh, dissolve uh, a calcium carbonate uh, piece, in water or in, in some acidic solution, so it dissolves. But then, when you reprecipitate it, the calcium carbonate the, 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 that forms is lighter in isotopic um, uh, isotopically than the solution above it. So the 40 calcium preferentially likes to go uh, or stay in the mineral, and the heavier isotopes of calcium they they rather go in and stay in solution. And that's what um, what people were utilizing to um, basically uh, the look into processes. So how is really calcium carbonate forming? How much of the you can use this isotope to quantify how much of the calcium in total, the total calcium budget, is uh, sequestered? And and um, yeah, I'm going to spare you all these details. But that was basically what I was supposed to do. And then there was a site in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge called Logatchev Hydrothermal Field. That site, uh, it's in the mid Atlantic Ridge. It was about oh, let me not lie, three thousand meters below sea level. I'll trust you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very, very deep. And uh, there were a bunch of really impressive black smokers and these sculptures, right? That they form. Um, and uh, the, the, speci- the, the special thing about this site was that the bedrock in that site was so-called ultramafic rocks, which means that these ultramafic rocks were mantle derived. As opposed to the more common crustal uh, mantle, like low upper mantle rocks, uh, like the salts or uh, these mm-hmm. kind of rocks. Anyway, so, and uh, I was supposed to really see and investigate and make a little, you know, a total calcium isotope and calcium uh, elemental uh, budget for that site. So, and when I did that, so obviously I, we had a bunch of, um, of uh, fluids, of black smoker fluids, hot fluids there. We had a bunch of. Uh, uh um, minerals calcium carbonate but also anhydride uh, calcium sulfate basically and um all those and i i analyzed all of them for their calcium isotopic composition and then there was the, the the rock left over right as the, the basically the missing link so for rocks people would say that calcium isotopes are not fractionated and when I say fractionated it means that the calcium isotopes are not basically separated as they are when they form calcium when they precipitate out of a solution as calcium carbonate right because rocks form at such a high temperature that the calcium isotopes don't have a chance to really segregate and to redistribute themselves mm-hmm. so they basically they, they whatever you have in one rock as a calcium isotope distribution is the same as another and it's the same as another and uh people had um, investigated a bunch of, a couple, a number of rocks, especially crossbow rocks though. Like they did a lot of uh, basalts and uh, rhyolites and uh, sedimentary rocks, especially. Probably also because it's easier, A, they are more available, and B, they have quite a good amount of calcium, like uh, 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 concentration, which you need to do calcium isotopes because you need quite an amount, like doing calcium isotope analysis is is really challenging and you you need a certain amount of calcium to process through right and so if you have a rock that has a good amount of calcium then it's easier for you to do mantle rocks like ultramafic rocks as i said that was more predominant in that site that i was working on they have rather a low level of, of calcium so it, so people did not really bother but then they said well the theory suggests that it's anyway not fractionating so it's exactly the same throughout the whole earth so, and then, and then, and that's what I also tell the students. Like I always say, the dumber you act, the better it is in, in research. Like don't don't act too smart because you could miss things. So, so I was, uh, I, I just wanted to be, And that's probably from my parents. Like my parents used both of them, interestingly. They, when they used to do something like put a furniture together or something, then they would not use it just, okay, now it's together. That's, it had to be perfect. They would really spend the time and it had to be just otherwise they would not feel comfortable. They, they they would always think about, oh, maybe I should have done that. I should have done that. And by the time they, they suffered through it, they always said, oh, by that time I could have done it actually instead of, you know, mourning about it. So anyway, I just felt so uncomfortable not to actually do it. And then I also thought very practically, I said, OK, if I if I write that paper, some reviewer could say, oh, but, you know, where do you where is your initial backlog signature? So mm-hmm. you put all these models together and, you know, budget calculations and mass balance calculations. But then you just assume that one. And yes, you can refer to all that that person really high up, uh, highly renowned uh, scientist, said that there is no. But, you know. So and then I took some some rocks and said, oh, how difficult can it be? So I digested it and it was really difficult. <laughs> so I digested the rock and it was not much a calcium. And the calcium isotopes, the way you do a lot of other uh, isotopes as well, you have to you have to process it through a so, so-called column. And it's a chromatographic, it's a resin. Basically, it's chromatographically you um, separate the, the element of interest or the isotope system of interest that is to you from all the other stuff that is in there, all the other elements, because those elements can disturb your analysis later on. And uh, so I processed that through this column. And because this automatic rock was too, it was very difficult to digest to begin with. And when you digest the rock and you have, you still see precipitates, you always run into, for isotope analysis, you always run into the risk that you fractionate the isotopes use yourself and you don't you, you know you, you put an analytical artifact to it so it has had to be a very clear solution and all that so i was not very successful but i tried try, try and then i remembered that back in minds my uh, former supervisor he was uh, famous for the so-called mpi ding reference suite it's mpi ding it stands for max Planck institute and ding stands for dingwell and Don Dingwell was a, a faculty and a researcher back in, in Germany in another city who he was a high temperature geochemist and petrologist. And he had invented an oven and a technique where he could melt rocks without using a flux agent, which was very, 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 very welcome.
0: What's a flux agent? A flux
1: agent is you put something into, for instance, like salt. Salt would be a flux agent where you lower down the the boiling temperature, so you could easily dissolve things mm. or melt things. For snow, for instance, salt would be the flux agent. So, and that's uh, for for a lot of rocks. So it's really difficult to melt them, right? Especially like I mean, if you have a lot of silica or not, or you know. So and then he invented, and we and there are um um. Techniques, right? Uh, they, we use lithium tetraammonium borate or uh, sodium hydroxide. Those are the flux agents. However, the minute you introduce something else from the outside, you contaminate your rock, mm-hmm. and uh, let alone the isotopes. So, and anyway, but he invented that technique, and then he was collaborating with a Max Frank, like Al Hoffman uh, specifically, and uh, and and Don Dingwell. Later, I was also funny. I ran into him in Saskatoon. He was coming and giving a talk, and then we were talking in Saskatoon. And then he told the story how this this really gorgeous MPI Ding um, reference glass suite uh, was was actually invented. He said, so he he reported that to to Al Hoffman and Klaus Peter Johann. They, they were they were friends and talking, uh, I guess. And then um, he said one day Al Hoffman was uh, standing in front of uh, of his house, like Don, and had the trunk full of various rocks. And Alman said he just went into the basement of the institution and grabbed a couple of rocks, and he grabbed them like really in a smart way. I must say, uh, probably he knew what it was doing, but uh, I'm pretty sure he knew what it is. So he was t- t- from from the whole range of the the the, the, the rocks on Earth. He was grabbing it from Crossville to ultramafic, from mantle to you know, and then uh, and then was 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 melting them to little little small small glass pieces. And then Klaus Wiedejochum, he would um, analyze them with microanalytical methods and he would characterize them and then make sure they're homogeneous because you need, if you, if you provide reference materials, you want to make sure they're homogeneous because if you distribute them, everyone should have the same, you know, or mm-hmm. achieve the same results, right? So anyway, so I knew that there was the sweet and then I thought, oh man, but they are melted to glass. So it's easy to dissolve those without any precipitation. that. So I asked Klaus Peter for, for a bunch of those sweets and he sent them to me. And then I analyzed them and I saw a huge, like a huge, significant calcium isotope variation. And I thought I'm going to get the same number that everybody had said. And then that's why that way I have proven that, you know, but no, I, we had a huge, like, like hit, variation in the, in the isotope signature in calcium isotope signature between various rocks and that that the ultramafics consistently and it was really nice and systematic it wasn't random we really saw that the the mantle rocks were heavier in calcium isotopes than the crustal rocks, and that was kind of really kind of a, a little bit of an eye opener for the community and um, the most that I'm proud of is really the fact that I was i was obviously not knowing that but i just wanted to do my job thoroughly (laughs) you know that that was pretty cool yeah that was one of the things and then and then here the honey like having the spark the honey was the as you probably know from from dominic it was a friend of her who wanted to check whether the honey is contaminated or not and then we did it it's kind of like a contract and then my colleague one day lian she came and she analyzed, she had analyzed those, uh, those honey samples from Hypes for Humanity. Mm-hmm. And it was this little box with these little honey samples. And then she came and then gave me one and said, What are you doing? So I said, Well, Dominic said we can distribute everything. So, you know, the, the honey project, we analyzed everything, the honey project stuff. And I said, What are you guys doing? We need to do so much more. Like having the spark. So, oh my God, no, there's so much more into And then I turned around and wrote to Dominic and everybody said, do not touch your honey samples. Do not eat it. We mm-hmm. need to do so much more. That is and then it was really cool. I mean, we, we really had something cool out of it. And um, Rye was great. Rye was also one of those things that you you don't imagine that you just do because it's fun. So Rye was um, was an undergrad. He was at VIU and is doing archaeology or anthropology. And one day he was referred by UBC Okanagan to us to do uh, cave bear bones to analyze them mm-hmm. by laser ablation. And then, so I had just started, I think it was just 2013 well, I wasn't even a year here. And uh, nobody had done bones here, and I never had done, but then uh, we thought, okay, let's try it. So he came and we spent the whole afternoon and tried and, and, and uh, analyzed and it went uh, surprisingly well. And then but then while sitting there and the, the lasers analyzing um we were uh, chatting and what are you doing and then he chatted about his project and what, what he was working on and then again bouncing ideas back and forth and um and then in fact uh, we were in touch then after that with the analysis obviously reducing the data and then uh, chatting uh over a year we were in email contact and i visited him in this cladina cave in belgium i was i was i was having my vacation in germany mm-hmm. and he happened to be there just uh, oh. to work there and then uh yeah i did a little detour by the, visiting my sister a little detour over belgium it was really great like i mean to see that firsthand these caves and then the, all these students sitting there and with a brush really sitting and you know the, getting these artifacts out of the, of the huge wall and I was really admiring his, his patient. I would have just probably hold on it like being, you know, a clumsy hard rocker. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then, and then, and then we we were, I was trying, all right, you have to do something with us. And it's so cool. Follow-up. And then, yeah, we wrote that proposal, convinced Bec- Dominic to take him on as a student. And then, um, yeah, I, I never thought that it would be so great. The indigenous and why I was very, very, you know, enthusiastic and passionate about everything, almost everything. And uh, yeah, pretty cool.
0: Again, um, I always say that geochemistry sounds like the most straightforward, uh, boring branch of sci- of geology. But then when you actually s- sit down and talk to one, uh, to a geochemist, you're, you've got your hands in so many different pies and you're doing so much unexpected science um, that I think it's one of the coolest branches.
1: <laughs> it actually is. I mean, the beauty of it is that it has a, only a few principles. It really has a, a few principles. There is radiogenic isotope systems. There is stable isotope systems. There is fractionation of trace elements. There is major element uh, the distributions and stuff. But it, it 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 applies to so many things. And this is for me always a sign that nature in itself is so consistent and so so clean in itself that you can actually, it's this Mandelbrot thing, you know, it repeats itself all over. You just need to be smart enough to apply it um, smart
0: enough. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Now you've touched on this already, um, but one of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing about field stories. Uh, It seems that the field is a place where just crazy things happen. And I'm sure that with your rich and varied history, of doing research all around the world you must have some amazing field stories
1: oh yeah, yeah how much should i do yeah. <laughs> oh yeah field is is this is really or you I just mean, lab stories i mean it's just um this is what, what I, I really as i said like sitting in iceland here and thinking okay this is what i want to do yeah you go into the field you have actually <laughs> access to what you're doing and, and and no matter which field of earth sciences i think it's great like if you do meteorites as i as i said the first time i like my dad had bought a, a super fancy um binocular and the first time i was looking at the moon i was so oh my god so you know, you have this um this visual ex- aspect of your science and then the the, the hand on yeah yeah field stories are um, so one of the most impressive maybe Actually, all of them have something I uh, Um so I when I did my um, undergrad in Max Planck, actually my grad there, I, um, I may have been just switching to, to my my master's thesis. No, not even. I haven't started it. So anyway, there was uh, Jonathan Snow. So he's a, he's a faculty, he was a faculty over there, and he did work on uh, mid-Atlantic ridges, And one of them was the so-called Geckel Bridge, and it's in the Arctic. Up there in the Arctic, and he, together with uh, her, his American colleagues, they had a program where they uh, was having a cruise going up to the Arctic, and he was taking a few student helpers, and um, I was lucky enough to be one of them. So it was on the Polarstein, the icebreaker, the German icebreaker, and uh, we all went there, and and it was just like like I was, it was just so impressive, like. I could never, it was the first time I was really in the Arctic or in any sort of, you know, ice fields. And, um, and then together with the Coast Guard ship, the Healy, um, it was an American-German um, joint venture, right? And they were together with us. So the Healy was a stronger icebreaker. So that would, uh, open up the way for the Polarstern and we were behind it. And then by coincidence, we would, we met the Odin, which was a Sweden, a Swedish icebreaker. And then that day we had three ships, like, I mean, I never forget that picture, three ships, like anchoring on an ice, uh, on ice. And we had a soccer field and barbecue on the ice. And it was just so amazing. It was very, very shadowed by the 9-11, it was that year. So we were up there and then we heard about 9-11. And the the very absurd thing that uh, we were all thinking, actually, and and especially I was thinking, being, you know, with my Afghan background, we were thinking, what are they doing down there? I mean, look at these landscapes and basically ice, you know, and usually it was overcast. So it's basically, if you really think about it, it's gray and white and and all these gray scales. so nothing super exciting, but throughout these grayscales you see a, a thousand of colors. Yeah, like you don't see them, but you feel them, and it's just so amazing. Like I couldn't even stop standing in the re- on the railing, and really, I was sometimes called in. Can you please do it your job, but once in a while, in the basement down there, and I could I could just stop. Watching just over the sea and the, of the, over the very crazy, but it's just. Um, but then when you see those those powers of nature and and the, the 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 mystic of it, and then you see what what they're fighting down there, what we are really every day we're fighting about, it's just so it really puts it into perspective, and that's what I love about Earth Science. That it really puts everything and everyone into perspective, just because of the time span and the space that like you go million and billion of years back and and still have amazing things to see. And like the Webb uh, telescope right now, I mean, it's just amazing. And then you you feel so small about your, oh, my God, in one hour, I have to finish this analysis. So who cares in one hour? What is it? Or or you, you stand on, on, on top of a mountain and you look down and you see, oh, my God. Like, you know, anyway, so that was that was pretty um, it was It was very impressive, let's say very, very impressive, life impressive uh, moment. And then um, and then, yeah, California was great. I had. So in in Germany, you have to do a bunch of mapping classes to to get your master's degree. One is a beginner's class and the other one was like an advanced class. And then the end is a big one. So four weeks, you're going to be put in an area and you have to basically create a geological map and you can pick the area. You can pick like you obviously pick the faculty. Uh, the, uh, where he's working on and then uh, yeah and then i uh, because i wanted to do something you know amazing and difficult and uh it was either new zealand or alaska or california so we couldn't find enough people for new zealand and alaska that like they, the, the the faculty didn't want to do it less than three people and it was just the two of us so we went for california and then it was in the first system complex and, and so uh, a little bit like say northeast from San Jose okay and but really in the middle of nowhere and then so the three of us the two of us and our supervisor who would go there he was there two actually maybe three days he would show us the the whole area and then he would uh, he just uh, left us there (laughs) and we were camping there and no idea what we're doing really and um but it was great so and then the first day or two we were walking around and and the park officer there like like the stereotype of American that you could imagine. And I mean, I am very small and not very, and my partner was also a very, very skinny uh, person. Like he was maybe even skinnier and tinier than me. And then Chuck looked at us, Chuck, the, the American guy, looked at us and said, you wanna do this 15 square kilometer area by foot? And then, and then he was waiting till our supervisor left. And then he gave us those two quad, quad uh, vehicles. And it was so amazing. He would fuel feel that for us for free. And we were, um, yeah, it was, it was the best thing ever. And a lot of times, like we had uh, before that, we had contacted the people. It was private uh, properties okay. where we could have access or not. And so we introduced ourselves to these people. Blah, blah, blah. And then Chuck said a lot of them, you have to be careful because a lot of people, uh, these area are forbidden or hidden um, areas to grow marijuana. Like, oh. kind of, yeah. And right. he said, be very careful because they shoot. Mm-hmm. If they see somebody coming in there, they do shoot. They did they even don't ask so <laughs> and, then, and then okay, so but it was it was great. So I was driving on that, having all the colours, the pencils in my hair. And like at, at times it was so great. The outcrop was just on the road. I wouldn't even get off my vehicle. And I was just kind of making my map in front of me and then pulling my, my pencils out of the air and you know and measuring once in a while here and there. The, and then um and then i got lost obviously somewhere and and then i heard some shooting <laughs> and yeah it was really it was it wasn't but i mean you know it's it's those kind of things don't be scared just be naive sometimes it, it really helps if you walk through your life in a more naive way sometimes i don't know your guardian angel maybe feel sorry for you and then <laughs> protects you so i was just walking right into a little area really hidden um, and, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, that was the, the, the thing. My, my, uh, vehicle got stuck. I was really on a really steep slope and I shouldn't have done that. It was really gravel and stuff. And I, it got stuck and I couldn't move it back and forth. So I, I grabbed it and was walking, it was pretty far away from the camp. And then I walked into there and then I saw these trailers and, and stuff, right? But at that time, I totally forgotten about what Chuck said. But then I just walked in and said, hello, is there somebody? <laughs> And that's what it came out super nice. Like, I mean, probably looked a bit worn out. And now that I think of it, it was very, you know, risky. But then he offered me a glass of water and it was pretty. He said, What are you doing? This and this and this. And then, so yeah. And then he showed me a little bit the way back to the normal normal path. And uh, yeah, and then I arrived really late and they were really worried. Chuck said, We were almost going to have a search and rescue troop. And then in the morning it was funny in the morning he drove with his truck up to that that area where i lost my vehicle and then he was just sitting on it and bang he got it out and said like, you just way too light <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was really funny funny and then and then kabul was great afghanistan was uh, was not great but it was very impressive and um kind of sad, but in that moment you don't notice the sadness. It's it's interesting. I, I can only say like Afghanistan sounds very sad, right? In the media, but once you're there, there's so much happiness too and so much good things that the sadness gets diluted. Like uh, I, I feel very sorry that the media does not really um, display the real picture of, of the, or the real atmosphere there. Anyway, so we were,
0: I had uh,
1: I put together a little proposal for a student, for an Afghan student, so he could do his PhD, um, his PhD in uh, with the Max Planck Institute, nice. and uh, there is this very famous uh, travertine formation in the, the, the so-called Bande Amir Lakes. So it's a, it's a travertine formation, freshwater uh, lakes, and uh, it's in the middle of uh, really the desert. So it has this very amazing blue color. And uh, so we were thinking, okay, maybe we can, you know, go and sample that. And it's, you know, 100, 200 kilometers uh, uh, west, uh, not west from uh, South, well, west from Kabul. So anyway, in the Bamyan where the Buddha statues got, uh, got right. destroyed. Yeah, so in that area. And then so uh, we went there and uh, wanted to sample that. And on our way there, uh, we went into this little, what is it called, These little Toyota buses. And then we went there and we stopped at a little tea house um, and get, get, got, some, got some tea and some food and then we just left and half an hour or maybe an hour later we heard in the radio that that tea house got really, um, uh, got, how uh, do you say that in English? Um, it was really bombed.
0: Oh, okay
1: yeah, it was it was really just a matter. It was really really uh, nobody got injured luckily but uh, we were just there. And then when we returned with all our samples, we just drove into uh, it, it was it was a newer road like just put new asphalt on it. Really nice, really nice and stuff and but then we just saw like fires and flames coming towards us and it was a UN convoy which got hit. And which was on the side and and this was for me was um, the first time I saw asphalt like um, the, the, the road melting or burning. It was really very it was so hot like we were really um, far away. Like we stopped like well before we saw the convoy, it was mm-hmm. a huge truck, but we, we were, everybody got started like a hold. And, and then we, we all went into the ditch and, and drove into the ditch and hide, uh, hide it for quite some time. But the, 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 the road was really like basically in flames, like it was really smoking. and Yeah, that was that was kind of um, an incident that uh, was, um, was one of the field trips you, you don't forget that easily. But but other than that, the Bandami Lake is so pretty. Oh, my God, it's really surreal. Like it's, it's really, and there is a little mosque there and you really need that mosque or whatever, just because you do get spiritual. And we were there for science, right? Like I mean, we just wanted to have the water samples and the, the samples but you, you just can't help it. You just like, it's just, it's just so amazing in the middle of nowhere. And then this contrast of the the yellow sand and the, 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 the brown yellow sand, and then this really almost self the sparkling uh, blue water, it's uh,
0: very serene. I've heard that the geology of Afghanistan is something that's really underrated.
1: Um. Oh my god, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so, I never thought it would be so beautiful. I mean, I have been in, in a lot of places and I thought nothing can top Iceland probably in terms of beauty. But uh, it, it's just a different beauty. Like, it's just like, I, I think you can't, it's one of the things where you can't, you can't compare nature. It's everything has just that. And you can't even believe that you can have so many feelings for so many different things. It's, uh, yeah. No, Afghanistan, it's just every corner. So when we were driving to, towards Bandamir, there was, there was it it was just like it would the, the the mountains would never end like on top of the mountain you would reach the top of the mountain and then you would see another peak and then you would reach that and then you would see another peak and 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 not in a scary sense uh, like I never forget my parents when they first moved to immigrated to Germany they were very very much missing um mountains and so they every occasion that they could find so they, they were in a in a in in the middle part, uh, the center part of Germany, so not very hilly, uh, a little bit hilly, but not very, like no no, uh, uh, mountains. So they would, every occasion, they would pack the two of us, like my sister and me, and they would drive to Bavaria and uh and then one day di- one time and we didn't have a passport and a visa right so we didn't needed a visa for austria and we were rejected so many times but my my parents would love to see the alps just because they they got always homesick right. and then one time they did we we got a visa and then we drove into austria and switzerland and then but then my parents i keep i remember telling them when they were chatting in front of the car they say it's not like Afghanistan. It's kind of scarier
0: here. I was going to say, they aren't the same mountains. No, They're exactly. very, very different.
1: Right. Yeah. So I, I always remember that. And, and, and I was listening and then I said, how come it's mountains? Mountains is mountains. It's high. And the, but they were saying, yeah, they... So in, in Afghan there is an expression that um, the the... How do you translate that? Oh, geez, English. Uh, the skirt of a mountain, you know, Okay. a, a mountain has a skirt. And then my, my parents would always say, these mountains don't have a skirt really, like <laughs> they don't have really, you don't, it, it doesn't lead up to a mountain mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, my when my parents came here, they felt much, 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 much more homey, oh, nice. I guess. Yeah, because just because you see it from a far away, but the Alps are very narrow, just, mm-hmm. you know, it just goes up like uh, pretty steep and uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's uh, like Afghanistan is really gorgeous in terms of geology, it's super interesting.
0: Uh, Mark, why is your work important?
1: Why is any work important? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Okay, aside of the fact that it feeds me, <laughs> is that it does give insights into things that we don't see microscopically. And not only in terms of geology or earth science or atmosphere, but especially like now with regard to COVID and uh, the pandemic, there are so many things that we don't know, but that chemistry, and uh, and I want to even go go deeper, isotopes and quantum states could tell us, which we don't know yet, but which very, very dramatically influence us, that I think we should spend any time and money, I wish, politicians would listen to better understand that because we cannot we cannot design our lives or it's very difficult if you design your life and the world and and politics and the way we should be living if you don't know the whole story right Mm -hmm. so I think that is uh, it is it is important to understand how it how it works like COVID how does it does it spread we up to now like airborne spreading was a little bit, you know, neglected. But now it, it, you see the importance of it or why is calcium? Like I never forget when I when I told my sister during my PhD what I'm working on and, you know, she's a, as I said, she's a medical doctor and she, they are fighting for life and death, basically. And I was explaining to her, oh, I'm analyzing calcium isotopes and rocks and, and seawater and fluids. And she looked at me and said, don't you want to do something else in your life? Like something really meaningful. And I was, I was, I thought at the, the first moment, I said, oh, maybe she's right. But then I thought, no, everything is important. Like, you know, like this, that, that's why I have a problem when people say, oh, what's your application, your real life application? I said, no, everything has a real life application. It's just not the time for it. Like, I mean, for a, for a caveman, a hammer is so much more meaningful than Wi-Fi. But it doesn't mean yeah. that Wi-Fi doesn't isn't you know doesn't have a real-life application it's just not it's time in, in, in the stone age
0: that's a perfect way of putting it i'm going to borrow that very easy
1: so so that's why i think um one thing that i i really want to emphasize um for for students and also faculties i must say you do need to know your tools like mm-hmm. there is no wisdom without the homo habilis there is no homo sapiens without the habilis like i mean you need to know your tools everybody and that's what i'm saying very in a very arrogant and very polarizing way and i'm probably exaggerating but everybody can make a good story out of good data but you need to provide those good data there is nothing more frustrating like really nothing more frustrating than pondering and pulling hairs to kind of put the wrong data together to a nice story i mean it's just so frustrating So, and that's why I'm emphasizing on analytics. Yes. I mean, it's a lot of people, um, consider it as just a tool and they are saying, okay, just give me the data and I need to, you know, uh, write my nature paper and do uh, like real thinking and higher up. And they do have a, have a point. Like I think research is about thinking more than measuring, but you need to know how you measure things. You need to know how people have created those data for use. You have to be critical about that. It's very easy to produce house numbers, and especially with these fancy instruments that we have. I mean, um, in former times, it's, it, was, it was more difficult because you had to actually sit and hold hands with the instruments, and you, you more or less knew what you're doing. You probably even accompanied an iron through the whole mass spectrometer until it got detect, detected. Every step of it. Mm-hmm. Now it's so automated, luckily, uh, that you know you can easily lose, lose it and not really neglect it and then get in like really a lot of trouble. And yeah so that's why I feel my work is important, especially if I could deliver the message to every user to be very critical about my very own data, like Mm -hmm. whatever I provide to you, take a look, take two looks, take three looks, ask questions, come back to me and, uh, you know, Claim and you know, <laughs> say, say really, that doesn't seem right, that could be, can't be right, or that looks weird. Yeah, you should
0: uh, be doing that. It's funny, you mentioned the James Webb Telescope earlier, and it's breaking boundaries uh, by capturing massive phenomena, galaxies, and solar systems. And you're really doing the exact opposite. You're pushing the boundaries uh, by delving into the minuscule and um, looking at how uh tiny things are
1: (laughs) exactly and that's the beauty again of nature i mean it's based on tiny tiny things and it can create you big big things all these all these pictures i mean when we see a supernova that's all based on nuclear reactions which is tiny and probably on quantum reactions which is even tinier and the higgs boson god knows what that thing is doing you know so (laughs) this is um but then but then it creates you and that's what i what i also love again this 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 um this uh, metaphor like this, you can, you can translate anything that you do in research back to life, like your, your life. So that's why I don't, I don't like this strict separation between natural sciences and social sciences. It's not, it's, it's just the different, you know, it's this particle wave dualism, that that kind of thing. You you just need to, to explain it in in the right frame. Mm -hmm. Otherwise everything is connected. Like the mass spectrometer, it's such a simple principle. And, but the sophisticated technical re- realization, and then what you get out of it is just, you know, absolutely, as you said, no boundaries at all. Yeah.
0: You're clearly really passionate about your work. Um, what's the best part about it, about your job?
1: The best part is to get really the insight, uh, like really reflect about life. And it, it may sound again a little bit, I don't know, like from your grandma's magazine or something, but but. Like I give you an example, and and that's what I love about it, that you can draw these parallels to to real life. When we do analytics, we have standards, right? So you have to have some standards that you know what it is or you, you presume you know what it is and then you measure them and then you set them to that number because the the mass spectrometer is pretty dumb right it gives you some numbers it counts a bunch of ions or a bunch of uh, uh, particles charged particles and then it gives you a number but you have to translate that number to a concentration value or a meaningful value for yourself so when you basically make your standard Uh, samples or your standard values, you solutions, you have this material, you have put it yourself together so you know how much calcium you put in, you know how much uh, magnesium you put in, and then you let the mass spectrometer analyze, and then you get some numbers, and then you know, okay, this number uh, must equal this um, concentration that I put into that. And then when you have unknown samples, you compare that. It's nothing else than comparing. So you build up a reference frame, and then you compare that. So real life, you should be, we should be doing the same thing. We need a reference frame so we all can act and the reference frame may be our government or our life or like the state that we live in or the the laws that that we, that we apply. What does not work. And that's what I always preach to people. Do not do double standardization. Double standardization does not work in analytics. It does not work in research. It's not going to work in life. If you apply one method to one thing, one of your samples, but another one to your other samples. You're going to have those numbers. And that's exactly what happens in life. If you are applying double standardization, it's the worst thing you can do. And that's those are the kind of things that that I love about about analytics, because it's so, as you said, it's real life like you like a lot of times I find myself to really adjust my life to to my analytics. You have to have a plan. You have to be true to yourself the minute you get to your project and that is something that happens very often it's very risky and very dangerous in research and science you have to be true to yourself if you're if we all have our you know our own Based on our pre-genetic disposition and background and, and culture and heritage, we all have our own taste and, you know, we're leaning towards something. So we have maybe really a theory in, in our back, in our mind, and we try hard. No, 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 I'm very impartial. I'm very impartial. But we do have it basta, That's it. That's the human nature. But then, if you if you analyze something and you have subconsciously this theory, you try very subconsciously to bend those data and whatever you have to this theory, just so to to you know confirm yourself. And that's the worst thing you can do. So you, you have to work very very hard to be very true to yourself, to be very impartial, to actually be be the advocatus diabolo of yourself. Like I always think that researchers and scientists should be the most self-critical people ever. They should question anything they say, anything they think, anything they believe. Yeah,
0: You've got a very philosophical approach to your science. I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, think, I think science is a philosophy more than anything else. And I think, I think if people consider it in a practical way, or, or when if people are very practical, then maybe science is not their field. You know, if you if you're a person, and again, you have to be true to yourself. And there's no validation, there's no judgment. It's actually a good thing that we have different people, mm-hmm. right? They are dreamers. I feel feel dreamers should be mm-hmm. should, should have the best prerequisite to go into science and research. Artists should definitely you have to have a a feel for arts. I mean, it's not all I'm very great in calculus, so I should be going into science and research. Definitely, you have to get a a strong background in in, in natural sciences and a very logic approach of things. But if you're not an artist, you're not a creative person, if you, for instance, are very and I have to be careful um, because it could be misinterpreted uh, very easily. But if you're not a goal, if you're a very goal oriented person and by goal oriented, I mean, you need to see the immediate result of your action. Like you, mm-hmm. you you need a visible, visible result of it right away. And then and then if you need or you, you are a person who wants to react to something immediately, then maybe, you know, you you're better off being in the stock market where you can quickly react to things and you have a result. And so but science is really more uh, like
0: people dreams. You should develop a philosophy of science course.
1: Oh my god, I would love to. I would I would have I think back in Germany there was the, the physicists they had um, kind of they, they got together with the philosophical students and stuff. I think it goes hand in hand. I feel very sorry to be honest. I have I feel very sorry that right now we're in such a fast paced world. Yes that we don't have the time anymore to do that but i feel i, I think that is also a, a very very big danger for the future of science and research in my view it, it doesn't matter if earth sciences or any sciences if we lose that and if we're now so focused and and and, and drawn to we have to have a result we have to have publications we have to be it's so profit based which we have to to a certain extent i'm not i'm not denying that but it it takes the beauty out and and it really, really very much leads to the, to the risk that we, we do not gain what we should be gaining out of our uh, discoveries. Like, I mean, the, the whole point of research is to find the truth, like to have the insight, the truthful insight of how our world works, whether we like it or not. So I think that should be the whole drive. And while competition and money and, and really, results, technological results and patents and all that is definitely they are strong motivational tools. I feel for, for research and science and academia, passionate curiosity should be really the only drive.
0: And if universities aren't going to, to push that, then who will?
1: Exactly, exactly. This is a very good point and I feel so sorry. Like a lot of times when I see something wrong and I, and I bring it up and say, no, 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 then they say, yeah, but that's how the world works. It just makes me so angry, and it's like that the world works like that because we let it be. And especially academia is now in a, a, a level of society where it should put a stop sign to it. We we have the power. At least we should try to to not play the game along. I mean, it's and I, and I always um, tease my group uh, whenever there is. Okay, we have to do advertisement, and the website should be looking look pretty and all that. It's definitely not a point, like I definitely, we have to be like that. But I always tease and say, oh, Hollywood again, it's not about the looks for God's sake. Research and academia should be the only, maybe the last resort where it should not be about the looks. Doesn't mean that outreach shouldn't, and and, and presenting it shouldn't be pretty and and appealing to the, to the public, but you know, that's not the point of research.
0: After the uh, 2008 recession, it was revealed how much corruption was in the financial system. Um, a bunch of business schools around the world uh, started adopting business ethics courses as part of their core curricula. And I think you can make a very good push for uh, philosophy of science to be uh, essential to, to a science degree.
1: Absolutely. Isn't that a sad thing? I mean, okay, in business, that's again, we we have to be very careful with ourselves. And that's what science uh, and research actually teaches you. Just be like self-reflectance is the first thing you should be doing when you get into academia and and science. I mean, isn't it sad that we have actually that we have to have this to begin with? Like, isn't it it science that we have to have an equity, diversity, inclusion, um, institution or or something like that. Like that we have to point out to people, it should be, it should be given. Like we shouldn't have maneuvered ourselves in a in a in a point where we need ethics classes, where we need especially not in research and science. Business, okay, it's the greed, it's human nature. You get a little bit, then you get the taste. It's just like gambling. You you win once, and then you want more, you want more. But for research and science, you have to eat each, each time you have to remind yourself, why am I doing it? I'm not doing it to increase my portfolio, my CV with publications. I'm not doing it to shine like a star in the next meeting. I'm not doing it to, you know, to have another job, like to, to, to really have a job security. But unfortunately that's what it is. Like I, I very much love the, 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 the the effort that our department especially makes in, in the teaching area. Like, I mean, they have these teaching professors. They have, they, they have a lot of teaching programs to, to just really focus and help the students. And what's the point of we are teaching? It's not that, yeah, well, just, you know, get a bunch of students through the class. No, we need to deliver the knowledge properly so everyone can actually grasp it. But I really, really miss that in the research um, uh, corner. I think the research is really neglected. You have to have, like, I mean, there are faculties, they under a high pressure, Mm -hmm. each one of them, they have a high competition between them. If you wanna sustain an academia and research nowadays, you have to have a faculty position. Trust me, I can say from my very, very own experience right now. So you want job security, you have to strive for a faculty position. Other than that, I'm pretty sure a lot of people, including myself, would be perfectly happy with a research associate position if it wasn't more secure, if you you didn't have to fear that, oh, this month we didn't earn a lot of money in the lab, so my salary, my is is, is you know, on, on at risk. And and but then the system, I wanna call it, doesn't do anything against it. But you need I mean it's renaissance. The minute people had the time and the muse to think about
0: themselves,
1: mm-hmm. research and arts and everything basically peaked up. But then but then nowadays we all are about, oh, we have to run, run, run. We have to profit, publication, your CV, your age is to, you know, to progress. You're never going to find a job anymore. And that's that's very sad. That, and that's not only sad. I mean, if it was sad, OK, whatever, you know, to say it again. That's how the world works. What can I do? But it is dangerous. It is really dangerous and it will definitely sooner or later it will um, it will throw science and research way behind, way more behind than it it should be,
0: actually. You touched on uh, topics of diversity and inclusion. Um, I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? You you mentioned you're Afghani, you're a woman.
1: Yeah, well, the reason I'm I'm offing is, (laughs) is that I, again, I have a different perspective of that topic a little bit. So if you ask me of my real life experience so far, I don't because I really was lucky enough, let's say it or I never felt even in the deepest Afghanistan, being a little small woman and among them, you know, whatever we hear from the media, among the very uh, conservative, very traditional Afghan, I never felt for a second any disadvantage or that I was considered as, you know, less smart less valuable valued or whatever let alone in germany even though i was an immigrant and even though i do know that germany has some or europe in general has some issues with immigrants i never felt per se really pointed out or as a minority i did feel the difference when i came to north america how much freer I felt in the society than I did in Germany. But I cannot say that I had a really concrete in incidents where I was, you know, pointed out or uh, was kind of, oh, you're a foreigner or uh, an immigrant. But, um, so uh, so I, so so, so here's the, the reason why I, I have a little bit, and, may, and maybe it's just because I was lucky and I don't wanna, I, I do need to learn more about people with other experiences. I, from my very own experience, I have the feeling that, again, human nature, you see what you want to see, and you hear what you want to hear, and sometimes if you feel, and I had some colleagues, like even Afghan people in Afghanistan, they were Afghan themselves, but they felt uncomfortable, but maybe because they were looking for it. Like when we were walking through society. I wasn't even aware of that. Maybe people would lo- look oddly to me. I sometimes look oddly to the, somebody w- when I don't like his shirt or sometimes oh, that, that is weird. That's, that's normal, you know, so I didn't specifically draw it, took it personally, you know, but the, but my, my friends did. And, and I, I w- would like to be very careful, especially as females, because we have this discussion. I would really, really wish that and hope that we women, do not do the same mistake as the old white man, you know, I I hope that we do not go that way. Like we do not segregate ourselves. We do not say, Oh, but I am a woman and you're not only doing that because I am a woman, because that's exactly what they did. So what, what difference then does it make between us and them, our approach? So why can't we just, be inclusive and say, like, as I said, my experience, old white men, really, I had the best experience ever. I had some women I didn't get along at all. So it really had nothing to do with that for me. So I can't really promote, no, 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 I have to like, for me now, if, if I wasn't honest to myself, I would, I should say, no, no, no. I have to support this woman because she's a woman and me as a woman, I am a woman. No, it's not because. I had a bad experience with her, but I had great experience with three old men, white men. So be very, very careful and just be, again, focused on the matter. So if there is a person, it's a bad person or a good person, a very difficult person or a not so diff- easygoing person, just judge him because it's that, not because it's a woman or it's weird or an immigrant or short or tall. <laughs>
0: Nobody wins when we play minority poker. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Just because a person's um, a woman doesn't mean they're going to have an easier time than exactly. than a man. It's uh, more generalizations, but exactly. we have to just remember we're all people and yeah, exactly. we have different lived experiences. Exactly. And,
1: hopefully we, exactly. and hopefully we can teach that the, the, the people who didn't get it, hasn't gotten it yet. Like these very stereotype old white men that we keep saying, Hopefully, we can teach them not to be like that in that we're not like them, in that we're including them. Yeah, you you're, you have the same right as I do, even though I'm a woman. And technically, legally, I have more rights than you right now. So, you know, I hope we don't go that.
0: I'm curious. Um, you've been at this for a while. Would you consider yourself to be mid-career?
1: Oh, geez. You're asking me so difficult questions. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask these questions. Here's the thing. I, again... Saying all that, and I'm glad that we actually chatted by you know coincidence before all that. <laughs> I have a, I have a problem with career. I hope that research and academia gets rid of these vocabularies: career, prestigious award, whatever, world class, let alone world class, or highly qualified personnel and all that. I think so. Okay, if you if you ask me in my career, I feel if if you ask me in research and science knowledge level I feel I'm very senior. If you ask me professionally on paper, I'm absolutely not senior at all. I wouldn't even consider myself mid-career. If you ask me time-wise like where I should be, then probably I should be much further along than I am right now. So yes, you pick.
0: (laughs) Well, I want you to look to to the end of your career. Uh, What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire?
1: Oh, legacy! It sounds so big. I hope not a bad legacy. I just hope, I just hope that I have never, ever, 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 because it's just such a beautiful field, and I feel like everybody should get into it, just so they know themselves better. I, I mean, research and academia. I hope that I never ever um, exacerbated anyone's research experience. If I did, by mistake, on an instrument, I apologize already from the dear t- the bottom of my heart. I hope that I, okay, when I look back, I hope that I have supported, not only supported people, but actually inspired them even more so. And I really hope that when one day I look back, I look back more with gratitude than with pride. I think pride is... Pride is a dangerous thing in, in research and science because you can you can easily lose yourself i mean you have all these beautiful things and your discoveries and you feel so proud because you actually basically or maybe even the first one who who revealed them but it can get into your head you could you should always 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 make sure that you realize that you just you're just a spectator like you just see that but you have not created that beauty that you're just revealed like just just you sit definitely in the first row of the play but you have not you're not behind the, the scenes of this play. so just uh, that i fear a lot because i as i said you can be easily very proud like the honey so proud oh i have the spark that this is such a great project but you know who knows somebody else had it too and in fact in the 1970s in germany they did Similar studies on the Frankfurt Airport, or um, you know, it's it's not about that. So yeah, that that's what I feel about myself, and I, I hope I, I, I always realize that I'm, I should have been very 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 grateful that I had the chance to to slide into this uh, in this role.
0: You do seem to have had amazing timing <laughs> through your your life, and I love the way that you put that. Um, you make the discovery doesn't mean that you made what you found you just found it it.
1: exactly and 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 this is as I said me as a researcher I don't want to point fingers at anyone but me as a researcher myself you can really lose yourself quickly in it because all of a sudden you identify yourself you know when you love something so much or you 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 get into it so much and all of a sudden you see yourself as whatever the Queen of whatever but but make like it should teach you humbleness Yeah, exactly. Like it should teach you modesty and humbleness. Any anything than anything else. Like because you, and that's again. that's this is why my heart really got into earth sciences because the earth and and anything related to earth sciences, astronomy. I I, I really consider astronomy or planetary sciences to it. It, uh, it it puts you into your actually into your place. Really, if you want to say it, it puts you down to earth. Yeah.
0: Now my final question for today. Um, I'm curious where you see your field going. What changes are coming to geochemistry and what advice would you have for young people uh, who are thinking of going into geochemistry so they can anticipate some of those changes and uh, not be blindsided?
1: So, okay, so I thought, and I probably shouldn't say it, I should phrase it differently. I'm to a certain extent grateful to the pandemic just because it opened our eyes that there is no such thing as biochemistry. There is no such thing as geochemistry. There can be only biogeochemistry. So we're all related to any, and as I said, I even, I even think social sciences are so close to natural sciences as, 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 as anything. So, so I think my field is definitely need to focus on immediate problems like climate change. Like we, we were up to now, we were probably dreaming too much as much as I love dreaming, but we, we were dreaming too much and try to understand the earth. But now we have to hurry up and understand it in a way so we, we do not destroy it. Like we have to understand it enough so that we do not, and we don't destroy the earth. I, I also have a problem with that, mm-hmm. always so protect the environment. No, the environment doesn't need to be protected. You need to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think that is something that we have to go. And, I, I, and it, it doesn't help anyone if we do not, um, if we do not uh, work together. We have to because everything is linked together, whether we like it or not. And if 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 COVID showed us one thing, then that, that there is no boundaries. We can draw as many political boundaries as we want. We can change it, and we can we can you know jump over it and invade our the, each other. But it it's you know it is already invaded. We are one. We, we're all sitting in one boat. So the, the best thing would be to pull in in one direction and. When I say that, I see, I say that the field needs to collaborate more, needs to have more inter- interdisciplinary um, um, uh, the, uh, the bridges between each other, whether it's medical to biomedical, biomedical to geochemical, geochemical to uh, geological, to mining, it's, uh, hydrological. And, um, and I think the earth sciences were a real good um, like uh, how do you say it in English, like already showed it to other fields that like there are so many different fields as geophysics and geochemistry and the hardcore geologists, tectonics and hydrology and all that. But they all already worked in. It. And that's that's one thing that I love about geochemistry, especially analytical geochemistry, because it's a link between all of them. And what, what I loved about like, for instance, geophysics, like we cannot look into the earth and sample the earth, but geophysics can help us to look actually into it with a seismic and their their methods. So so I hope that this jumps over to other fields as well. And um, I think that is the, the direction that has to go. One thing that I really, and I, I just said that to one of our summer students who joined us and was kind of reflecting about her future, um, we should not take ourselves out and sit in a little corner and to be those dreamers that I was just preaching that we are, but actually be active, proactive in the policy making. We have to be there. Like I, I, I never forget when I was in Geoma, Mojab Latif, who, who was uh, uh, mobilizing everybody years ago about, um, about the climate change and what it means and what it soon will mean to us. It was. It was in the media. It was so one of the first things where where it was so downplayed. Oh, there is a crazy scientist, and he exaggerates totally in the data, and who knows whether they are right or not. But yes, we should be involved, and I feel very sorry that 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 a lot of scientists even don't try to change their own system, that is academia, let alone to really involve themselves into the bigger picture, because politics and policy making is only only. I mean. If you do that with, with again, without knowing all the facts, it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's really dangerous. It's the the risk that you do it all wrong is so high. Like, so uh, so I think the we have to engage ourselves more into policy making, more into politics, more into really shaping the world, and not saying, oh, but that's how the world works, and leaving all of it to Hollywood to make all the world. Works.
0: What's the point of doing all this wonderful science if you're not going to act on it? Exactly. Well, Marg, I've had a delightful time chatting with you today. Um, I've loved hearing your story. Um, Yeah, you're absolutely a rock star. And also loved hearing about your views on science. Um, I think they're very fresh and, well, refreshing. Um, Those are all the questions I have. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go?
1: Not if they feel that, as I said from my very own experience, it's not bad it's there's so much beautiful things out in life so it's not um and again nobody should look high up to the scientists they're just human beings and you know they should be the most humble and grateful people to the society that the society allowed them to do that beautiful work and uh, yeah i i just want to thank you thanks i tend to talk about them so thanks for your patience And uh, yeah, thanks for having me, finally. I know I was a little bit, I tried to chicken out of that, but it was really, really, uh, yeah, really pleasant to chat about
0: all of Well, I'm glad you finally sat down with me. And um, yeah, I'm just glad to have been been able to peer into your head for a little bit. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening to Honor, On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.